Welcome to the Continent of Resistance, a podcast with interviews and discussions on labor movements across Asia. Hello and welcome back to the part two of our highlights episode, where we are sharing with you all uh, some of the highlights from uh, this year's uh, episodes. And for the next clip, so this is a conversation with the union president of Snikasi, which is a union of freelance workers in the in Indonesia. Kian, can you introduce this clip? Yes. So we in this episode, as you said, we talked to Nura Aini about about Sindikasi, about the union of creative and media workers in Indonesia, right? So right. I chose the part where when Nura explained the goals of Sindikasi and talked, she talked specifically about how Sindikasi actually the goals of Sindikasi, especially the largest goals of integrating new groups of workers within the working class. And also talking about anti-capitalist culture, which I find is really great. And you know, and then I think I want to select the part where we could understand why syndicacy is unique. Yeah. So let's let's hear this excerpt. Well, actually, organizing a freelancer is a challenging is <laughs> a challenging area that we and then we take when we establish the union organizing for us means it's not only to make our voice bigger because we organize as a collective of course we have a goal when we organizing including freelance well syndicacy set uh, the goal uh, actually we set like for goals in our constitutions, like, of course, about the working class. We want the realization of independent, dignified, and sovereign working class. And this is very important for us to raising awareness about the, and the uh, realization of the working class. And then establishment of just inclusive and human working environment, especially in the media and creative industry when we walk in. And the development, and of course, uh, we work now in the capitalistic industry. So we try to development of, uh, we try to develop of non-capitalist counterculture initiative that are managed collectively. Of course, asset managed collectively is a part of the main activity that we do. And also, we want to expand the strategic role of media and creative industry worker in advancing democracy because we bring democracy in our name. And of course, we also join the civil movement in Indonesia as the working class movement. And we want to advancing uh, to advance the democracy alongside other civil movements. Yeah, let, let, I think let's talk about all of this issues but i i do also want to go back to the basics a little mm-hmm. bit uh you know you're talking about the challenging challenges of organizing freelance mm-hmm. workers can you paint for our listeners just a picture of what it feels like what it looks like to to work as a freelancer i assume someone let's say in the media industry you get commissioned or you pitch idea or you get commissioned to do a writing project or 
It could be multimedia project and you get paid on the basis of that project, right? And otherwise you don't have any mm -hmm. job security or you don't have any mm -hmm. uh, other kind of social insurance or so other social benefits or protection. How do you organize people who are in such a precarious conditions? First, identifying workers as entrepreneurs come from deception of employment relationship and the various of employment relationship status obstructed the identification of worker as working class. And the specific conditions such as independent workers lead to different understanding of the working class. So uh, like Kevin said, uh, the freelancer sometimes they got project and they they work as an independent workers. So they're not understand as a working class what is the working class so of course our uh, barriers to organize this kind of status of workers first identification of not working class we have to work more of course on raising awareness of the working class condition and identifying themselves as a working class and additionally most of media and creative industry workers are ununionized. So freelancer in Indonesia, it's hard for them to join the union. And maybe syndicacy sometimes is considered as their first union. So mm -hmm. in, in that, we have to work from basic right. to acknowledge what the union is and what we're going to do when we join the union. And most of them are freelancers because freelance in Indonesia has no specific union in the workplace because they're not work with fixed workplace, right? So right, it's right. kind of characteristic that we find it challenging to right. organize. I, you talked about um, challenges in terms of, you know, young, young freelance or mm -hmm. creative workers not not seeing themselves as part of the working class or worker. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder if you can share what kind of strategies that syndicacy has, has been using to, you know, to encourage more people or, you know, more freelancers, especially in the creative and media industry to, to join syndicacy. And, mm -hmm. you know, given that, you know, from what you explain about, about your goals, about your four goals that, you know, seem to me are pretty kind of abstract and kind of big as a mission. So how do you, yeah, how do you convince them to to see the, the, the immediate benefits of joining Sinikasi? Well, firstly, we, our strategic uh, strategies came from our decision to make Sinikasi as a union uh, of non-workplace union. And this is actually our strategies because with this strategies we have we can organize workers across workplace since freelance are constantly changing they changing the employer right so they are have no fixed workplace so this non workplace union is kind of strategy to to make them has union so. And we also observe that freelance is a prevalent trend among young workers. 
including those who are entering the job market for the first time. So this trend actually not only in the choice of young workers to engage in freelance work, but also reflect that this flexible nature of employment relationship in the current labor market where hiring and firing are relatively easy. So as a result, we encounter more job opportunities in the form of uh, freelance positions. So to effectively organize young workers, we adapt a young-oriented approach that utilize social media as a campaigning and organizing tool. Well, this is, I think, our main strategies also to, to attract more uh, freelance to join the union. Well, we leverage social media platform to create content addressing the employment issue faced by young workers. Uh, additionally, we organize events and activities that resonate with the preference of young workers, such as music, art, and other related uh, activities. And we have moved away from using traditional union jargon, symbol, and specific colors of the traditional union. So we're offering a fresh and innovative uh, approach uh, to worker collective action. So for the young workers, this is not, not the traditional union. We're offering, of course, the fresh approach for the workers to join the union. And we also uh, organize uh, independent worker and freelancer we kind of choose the strategy to strengthen their bargaining position with advocation tools such as freelancer contract guideline and also we make how to advocate advocate your right and so on so they feel the benefit to join uh, the union when they are a freelancer because maybe you work alone but don't struggle alone too <laughs> And for the next clip, Kyung, you chose something that from a episode that we had about women workers in the media industry. Can you talk about what the episode was about and the particular clip you chose? Right, right. So the part that I chose, I think, was one of the most interesting conversations that we had with Shia. I think Shia talked about the disparity or the mismatch between, you know, the fact that now the, the industry or the sector has predominantly women workers as members, but the unions are still, you know, the same, right? The unions are male-dominated and hierarchical, and there's mm -hmm. this challenge. And I think, as she put it, you know, the future of the labor movement is in the hand of, of the women workers. So I find really interesting the the last three clips that we chose uh, in many ways they are they are quite connected right one connection is that the precarious nature of the the employment in in the media industry for freelancers 
another thing is is of course the challenge of organizing young workers. How how do you think about those connections in the in the clips we we just shown? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is something that that we have seen or we have heard about across across the board. Right. It's not it's not unique in one particular context, and we have heard this in the in Indonesia, in Japan. You know, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, for me, it tells us about what's going on, about kind of transformations going on in right. the economy, and right. and at the same times, you know, the challenges that we face as a labor movement, right? So we need to understand. I think for me, from listening to all of these guests, it's really important. We need to understand the change in order to understand how to build power, right? Right. Right. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think your emphasis on the transformation of of work of the economy of work is really important. I think the usefulness of looking at more than one countries you start see start to see patterns, right? And as you highlighted, in many many of the countries that we are looking at, there is a, definitely a shared pattern of you know precarization of work or contractualization, or some people say informalization. But they all point to the same kind of pattern of sort of short-term and less secure work, and and I think the question that we have been you know thinking about for the podcast for our own work is, you know, where workers' power lie, as you mentioned, and also how do you build more power given the conditions? Mm-hmm. And here's the clip. Right, right, and, and you know what's really interesting and striking about the work you do, Chia, was that you know you explicitly uh, look at this problem from the perspective of a workplace, power imbalances, power relationships in the workplace, and and also, uh, you know, taking very union perspective. So you're organizing Mm -hmm. uh, them not only as women, but as women workers. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a bit more about this from a union organizing perspective? Uh, Because, you know, as we're seeing uh, elsewhere in the US and, and elsewhere, there are similar Me Too movements. But mm-hmm. they're not only uh, they're not always framed as a, as a workplace issue or as a union mm-hmm. issue. Uh, can you talk about when you put this into a union framework? Mm-hmm. H- how much does it help to build up the the confidence and the strength of women workers? And and also, what are the biggest barriers to to organizing uh, women workers around sexual harassment? Very interesting question. It's kind of interesting how uh, there was it just kind of coincided with this Me Too movement or women's Mm. establishment and what newspaper workers' unions were trying to do at the time. It just so happened that before this high-ranking official sexual harassment case came out, uh, there was a a movement within the Federation of Newspaper Workers' Unions. It's called Shinbun Roren. But um, to actually encourage women members to actually speak up and create their own space and presence. Unfortunately, newspaper, <laughs> newspaper now our federation, Shimbunoren, has a lot of newspaper uh, newspapers and also wire services uh, across Japan. And we organize about 20,000 20, workers, right, in the industry. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, because it's, based on lifetime employment workers, mm-hmm. it's majority male members. And I would have to say the industry actually, in the industry, about 20% is women, right? Workforce mm-hmm. wise. And so unions, when it comes down to unions, it'd probably be a lot fewer. 
I have to say, I'm one of the few women members who would always come and attend the conferences. And every time I go there, I am always discouraged because I'm one of the very few would be like, I would be one of the five of, you know, out of a hundred or something members mm -hmm. attending. And so I always wanted to see, I didn't know that there are a lot more women members in the Federation. So in, in 2008, mm -hmm. it just so happened that there was other women in the Federation who wanted to get together and find each other and try to, you know, try to create their own, so try to show their presence in the Federation. Mm -hmm. And then this case, this sexual harassment case happened. And mm -hmm. so we kind of, I kind of finally found them in the Federation, in the union. Mm -hmm. And we connected and we thought, well, you know, sexual harassment cases are work-related issues. I think we had mm -hmm. to put that in that context mm -hmm. for people to understand, for the society to accept this as a work-related issues rather than personal issues. Because it's always like, you know, it's always uh, shoved away because it's like between the two individuals, you know, right. problems between the two individuals or something. But it's not. It's a work-related issue. It's a work safety issue, right? Right, right. And so we actually uh, framed it that way. And it was very well received by the unions mm -hmm. and especially, you know, people, especially of the unions, the Federation. You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. Right, right, right. Now, you, you know, you told us something before, which I find really fascinating. You know, you said that you told us that, you know, women workers are really the future of the labor movement in Japan. Like, what do you mean by that? And, and what, where do you see not only in the media sector, but mm -hmm. also in other sectors? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and where you see as uh, really interesting areas of, of labor organizing uh, that mm. are emerging with, with women workers? a lot of women who are also part-timers or casual work mm -hmm. they have they make up majority of the workforce in these sectors mm -hmm. and so they were hurt big time and they mm -hmm. couldn't barely survive with all the business closures and so some of us who recognize that we came together and there was more than a hundred women who just said, we need to offer some kind of uh, support to these struggling women. And of course, it wasn't just the labor unionists, but also lawyers and mm. civil society organizers. We came together and we offered free consultation that's mm -hmm. where we provided some relief goods and also food, like raw veggies, uh, mm -hmm. you know, life mm -hmm. support, that type, mm -hmm. type of thing. And it's, it's we've been offering this consultation session several times since March 2021. But what was interesting is that this is probably the one of the very few, one of the rare occasions where women are alone, working mm -hmm. together alone, because usually... If you look at labor unions, it's majority, right. I'm sorry to say, but it's majority <laughs> men. It's, it's men's world, right? Right. The media mm -hmm. is the same one, right. same way. Right. But so 
uh, even if there is like a lot of presence or a lot of women members, if mm-hmm. you look at the top executive levels, they're mm-hmm. mostly men. And so, what women have found themselves doing oftentimes is they're receiving some kind of directions from the top down,、uh-huh. and then they're listening to you know these orders. So this consultation committee、mm-hmm. is flat. Like we don't have any anyone who has you know、mm-hmm. who's on the top level. Like so, we it's don't not hierarchical. Levels, yeah, it's not hierarchical,、mm-hmm. and we don't have any power relationship either. And so、mm-hmm. everybody is. This is grassroots, like generally grassroots.、Right. Everyone has her own idea that they can bring to the table. And we discuss, and we say、mm. what's you know we decide what's possible and what's not possible. So that's why it's it's workable. It's、mm-hmm. not like you're being told what to do, you know. Right. This is what I often talk about in Japan. Seventy percent of casual workers are women, but then majority of unions still. Mm-hmm. Are based on lifetime employment,、mm-hmm. and the largest confederation in Japan has, you know, majority male membership、mm-hmm. because that's where, that's who the lifetime、so、employees are. So there's a mismatch. <laughs> exactly, and this is what the future of union comes in, right?、Mm-hmm. Future of union movement lies in the hands of casual workers that are women. Majority, and so if you start organizing women, or if women start standing up, or if there are some rooms of casual workforce, if there is a lot more proactive organizing of casual workers, that would be majority women, and we actually、mm. hold the key to、mm. the future of labor movement,、mm. and that's actually what I believe. What we did for、um, the victim for the women. The consultation session that we offered for women, I believe that that was like the picture we want to draw、mm-hmm. for the future. I mean, not necessarily, you know, how st- there's a lot more struggling women, but、mm-hmm. how we built, how women actually built that movement and built that service. That's the future of of、mm-hmm. labor organizing. I mean, we have this very horizontal. Relationship, you know, there's no hierarchy.、Mm-hmm. We all decide. We all pitch in. We all give out our ideas, and we try、mm-hmm. to realize the ideas that we decide is best for everybody. You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. Okay, so Kevin, the next excerpt is from the, one of the recent episodes that we talked about neoliberalism, decay or decline of neoliberalism Asia, right? So this is the episode where we talked with our guests, and in in this episode, actually, we highlighted a couple of themes such as you know the authoritarian attacks on worker and and the crisis of social reproduction. Can you talk about the 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 excerpt that you chose. 
Right, and I think this is goes well with the the clips that we have just chosen. In a way, I think this is an effort to contextualize what's been happening. Like you know, what we're seeing all those contractual or informal short-term work, precarious work. We have also seen the attacks uh, on unions, on, on works, uh, and on organizing more generally. So, so how do we understand that the period we are currently in? I think that's the the background for doing this episode, I think the clip that I chose highlights some of the dynamics, right? The conditions of neoliberalism in Asia, in which it's being, it's manifesting and it's also being exhausted. So we, we spoke, I think, about the ways in which the, the state either directly attacks unions through brutal force or a, through anti-labor legislation reforms to undermine workers' protection. And I think one of the things that I'm seeing more and more uh, across Asia, and then you can say across the world, is this crisis, as you mentioned, of, of social production, that neoliberalism has driven so many workers to the, to, against the wall, so to speak, and workers no longer find it either possible or just affordable to have children to afford childcare and then also elderly care. So there is not only a, a crisis of working conditions, but there's also a, a crisis of of capitalism being unable to reproduce its own working class. Right, and here's the excerpt. Coming back to this idea of authoritarianism, or the sense that, you know, it seems that the so neoliberal capitalism is not delivering the, the kind of prosperity right. that people may be expecting. And in response, I, I think the state in many countries have turned more authoritarian and that includes both countries that are already authoritarian but also countries that are formally right democratic has taken like a more authoritarian turn Uh, and i think it's a lot to do from my perspective it's a lot to do with the decline or maybe the slow death of neoliberalism and its failure to meet the expectation of not only the working class but also the middle class Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of the decline or the decay, because for me, it's, we know capitalism has this destructive construction, right? This idea that they always reach the limits and then reinvent and pushing the limits. And But when you talk about decaying or declining of neoliberalism, what, what exactly do you mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I take a lot of ideas from our editor-in-chief of Liber- mm-hmm. Asian, Asian Liberty Review, Dayu Chang, who has written a lot on, on neoliberalism in Asia and labor movements. But last year, we published a piece mm-hmm. by him specifically looking at the sort of decay, what he calls decaying of mm-hmm. neoliberalism and its impact on labor. I think from his perspective, he also actually took the Asian financial crisis as an important hand frame or starting point to look at this issue that over the years, realism, it didn't quite die. I mean, it's still with us, right? But it has less capacity to deliver economic growth or, or jobs that are kind of decent. That is not to say that neoliberalism was ever wonderful to workers, but I think it's even got even much worse at delivering economic growth, right? Because the, the idea of neoliberalism is 
to restoring, you can say cost power to restoring economic growth after the kind of welfare state in, mm -hmm. in industrialized economies. And I think it's increasingly looking like it's even now able to do the, the very basics of what, what it promised, which is have a bit higher economic growth, even at the, the cost of, of labor. And what it does is then people began to react to this and either by organizing resistance or just showing, showing this, this sort of disaffection about the, their conditions. And, and in return, the state has done what it thinks is the, the best way to deal with the situation, which is attack labor so that they can attract more investments right. and restore growth. But I think this is not working, right? I, I think mm -hmm. we see in, in many countries in Asia, governments have either used direct repression, right? So mm -hmm. arresting, harassing labor, labor organizers, workers, or through legislations that undermine or erode worker protection or combination of both, right? And I think we were talking earlier about how in many, many countries we see like in labor legislations in Indonesia, in Sri Lanka, in India, right? Right. Uh, but also very direct repression in places like Korea and China, where the mm -hmm. state basically went full sort of out on, on cracking down on labor and unions. Right. But I right. think it's quite an interesting moment to think about is this quite a concerted effort by the mm -hmm. state to attack labor on behalf of capital. Right. Yeah. For me, I kind of see that this return of, return of the conservative or authoritarian forces in Asia is a response to, you know, struggle, right? It's a right. Uh, local struggles that try to counter the intensification of you know, exploitation or neoliberal, increasing neoliberal pro process in the region. And yeah, we, I think we kind of see, as you said, the concerted efforts. If we break it down in each country, we kind of see that like a comeback, right? Of, you know, when middle class voted for, for like in the Philippines, Duterte hmm. or in Cambodia, Hun Sen or in Thailand, we saw like a conservative movements supporting the military and, and the, right. the conservative and these governments. Well, we see this in recent periods, like each governments are, as you said, coming up with stronger or more restrictive registration, right? To right. kind of undermine workers' power or increase the flexibility or to casualize the labor market even, even further, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I think this probably is more pronounced or clear after the COVID. I, mm. I feel like there, in the COVID period, there has been a lot of, I don't know, realization and consciousness about this, right? And mm. a lot of protests, a lot of struggles happened during the COVID in 2018, 19 to 20. Mm. And this right now, I don't know, we see a lot of, a lot of new laws, uh, a lot of new legislations mm. have been enacted, right? In Philippines, Indonesia, and all of them are, uh, under the guise of reforms, try to discipline workers even more, right? Yeah. yeah, and it's sort of interesting to think about the fact that even without those sort of reforms, quote-unquote reforms, labor conditions are already pretty bad right. <laughs> in those right. countries. So it's hard to think how much 
like worse you can make it. Like you can make it much worse, of course, but I also feel it does push people to the brinks. I, I think I see a lot of places where people just feel desperate, right? Because mm-hmm. this is already bad and people came out of COVID with who either lost their jobs or at least in some ways being impacted by the pandemic. And now they're on top of that. They're facing right. even more attacks on their right. conditions. But, so it begs um, the question how, how, yeah, where is this all leading to, right? Right. But don't you think that that's probably, you know, an articulation of what you just said about decaying neoliberal, neoliberal capitalism? Because, mm. you know, it, the capitalism always reached its limits, right? But now it's so desperate that it cannot squeeze more labor power or right. produce more surplus from the already exploited yeah. groups of workers. So they are trying to do more, you know, it's, it's kind of pushing workers to, to the brink, as you said, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, of, for example, quite interesting example, which is South Korea. South Korea has one of the lowest birth rates right. uh, in the world. Young people just don't see the point of getting married and having children because the cost of raising them is just very, very high. Right. Then the, I think early this year, the South Korean, a very anti-labor government president proposed this labor law that, that regulation that is make even longer working hours legal. And this makes totally no sense, right? Cause if you already have a workforce that is working long hours and they're still feeling that they don't have enough incomes to support their families, support themselves and their children, pushing them to work longer. It's not right. going to help with the situation. It's going to make it worse, right? So I think mm-hmm. that's just come to back to your point. I think it, how much can you still attract, extract surplus labor from already very exhausted workforce, right? Right. So, Kevin, I think this is probably the last excerpt that we will highlight in this episode. This is, I think this is from the second episode, you know, a while ago when we talked about the post-coup situations in Myanmar. You know, in this episode, I remember we actually talked to three guests, right? We right. we highlighted the organizing, labor organizing in among garment workers. And right. then we talked about the rise of activism within the, the gig economy as well. And then we ended this episode with Stephen Campbell talking about the, the political situations and, and strategies in general. So can you, can you introduce the part that you, that you show us? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we are both very interested in Myanmar and the situation of workers there. I think I was a little bit dissatisfied with the way some of the discussion has been framed as a simple dichotomy between authoritarianism, democracy. I think there's a missing dimension of neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism there. You know, obviously we recognize and see the real uh, effect of of the coup and the military junta and its very oppressive measures. But I, I also think there's a risk of romanticizing the the conditions for workers for union organizing during the previous democratic transition. And I think here in this clip, Stephen Campbell really highlighted 
some of the continuities between the previous democratic period and the current coup period really focus with a focus on the fact that you know even during the democratic transition no period the only option the really a real option that was given to workers was the integration of Myanmar's economy to the global economy via this low wage and very dangerous and low uh, low skill export economy in which the government you know had been actually climbing down on workers organizing on pythons on students well before the coup so i think it's important to highlight this 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 perspective so here's here's the clip one really important question or interesting question i i i i've been to ask for a long time is this this kind of dichotomy between democracy and authoritarianism i mean certainly after the coup you know and and obviously the, myanmar is not the only country in the region southeast asia or or asia as whole that has seen the return of authoritarianism or at least authoritarianization right even in countries like for example south korea where there's formal democracy electoral democracy but you know the 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 ruling the president currently has a very very anti union position so I, I increasingly i think i, I feel like in the region a lot of politics is framed around this dichotomy between authoritarianism and democracy but i want to see i want to ask how you see this question especially you know the kind of kind of economic system neoliberalism you know it's also no friend to workers either even if you have electoral democracy the economic system is such that that workers are still not doing great can you talk about how we may break out of this dichotomy and and maybe talking a little bit about the 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 economic dimensions uh in in Myanmar not just the political hey i think this is an extremely important question because i think there's a risk because of how uh, horrific and violent the coup and the post coup situation has been the, the military violence that there's a risk of looking during the so-called transition had a lot of problems i mean the rohingya genocide was just the most high profile of those but there was also a lot of other issues and regarding workers specifically one of the issues is that the the so-called transition was framed around on the one hand a, quote unquote democracy which was a very restricted form of electoralism but also a an economic transition and this the agenda that was pushed on Myanmar by people like well organizations like the world bank and the international monetary fund but also various foreign economists foreign consultants and governments was that Myanmar had a single development choice this was to become a foreign investment driven low wage extractivist export economy that was incorporated to global supply chains and this was presented as though this is somehow part and parcel of a democratic transition but what it did was require any elected government to crack down on worker peasant and student organizing and mobilizing because the in order to get foreign investment these governments had to create a welcoming environment for foreign investment and so when workers mobilized when workers were going on strike this was improving a situation for workers but from the government's point of view trying to attract foreign investment they saw this as a threat because it was creating a less than welcoming environment So there was very there were certain labor laws granted in order to provide this space which were important and they did in fact increase the space for worker organizing but at the same time 
both elected governments in the transition, the so-called transition from 2010 to 2020, also cracked down on worker organizing, as well as peasant and student organizing. And one of the, I think, important interventions that came out, critical interventions were people in the country, as well, well as other analysts who were arguing that this foreign investment-driven development agenda is not, in fact, the only alternative, the only option. There's an additional issue that comes up in Myanmar at the present because there's a dilemma and a debate regarding whether workers who organize should register formally with the post-coup military authorities. Because there are critics who uh, understandably who argue that registering a union with the post-coup military authorities is legitimating it in a way. And again, in a way, sort of normalizing the situation. But other people argue that well, this could provide some, however small and limited, some increased space to organize and to negotiate. And so this is another one of these dilemmas and debates that's happening. So some workers are choosing to organize in their workplace and to try to negotiate directly with the employer without going through any formal mechanisms to register as unions. And interestingly, this also happened before the coup. There were labor groups who, who did not agree with the labor law that was in place, and they said that it was very restrictive and that it was, uh, again, kind of this uh, a critique of the, the neoliberal use of this kind of labor law that's trying to, in fact, restrict worker mobilizing rather than enable it. And so some uh, kind of more radical worker organizers said, let's organize, organize unions, not register them. And our power is based on workers' collective solidarity in the workplace. It's not based on relying on them. And this, you know, if to make other comparisons, this is something that historically is connected to like the industrial workers of the world who also argue that we should, they, workers should not register with formal government mechanisms because then you become reliant on the government rather than on worker solidarity. But nonetheless, in the present, there is this move where there have been, since the coup, workers who have formally registered as unions, which is interesting. It's a question about whether and to what extent this actually gives them space. Is it, in fact, giving them increased space to organize, maybe even to strike? Or is it simply a, a superficial acknowledgement by the local military authorities uh, of, this, of these forms of organizing? So, we have both. We have these informal forms of worker organizing in Myanmar and some uh, formal registered unions, unions who are registered before the coup, as well as workplace unions that have registered since the coup. I hope you enjoy the selection that Kian and I have chosen for you. And we're going to come back soon with more new episodes. You have been listening to the Continent of Resistance podcast. You can download our latest episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also visit our website at laborreview.org. See you until next time.